I've been taking a shining to uh, booing people. You know, it's <laughs> in like, public. No, well, yeah, actually, it's the most like dick thing that you can do, and everybody joins in on it. It's crazy. The booing is so. What's the, what's like? Is someone talking, and then you just be like, "Boo!" No, I'll give you some context. So I was at a birthday party on Saturday, an adult birthday party, and somebody spilled a drink on the table and like ruined this tablecloth. And I was just like, "Boo!" And everybody was like, "Boo!" Like other room was like, "Boo!" Wow! It, it's like the, the most satisfying thing to start a boo towards somebody else. This always gets me back to the whole thing about negativity and how it spreads much quicker than positivity. Because I feel like yeah. if you start cla- if you started clapping, you just look like an asshole, and then everyone just kind of like awkwardly claps with you. Yeah, they're not happy to do it. No, I feel like with a boo, people are like, "Fuck yeah, I've been waiting for this for." <laughs> yeah, I've been waiting to boo something for a long time. <laughs> yeah, it's just been just sitting there like boo, boo, boo. It's really satisfying to do it too. It's kind of like releasing, it's like releasing anger without just looking like a crazy person. Like if you scream like, fuck, you're like, that that guy's, that guy's, he's having some problems. problems. Yeah. But if you're like, boo, just like, oh shit, what is he booing at? I'm going to start booing too. Yeah. And then everybody's just like, oh, something sucks. Boo. Yeah. Wicked smart, wicked cool, wicked fucking stupid, whatever the fuck. I'm wicked. I'm thinking like a Georgia cheese. It's so hot here. My boy's wicked smart. Cause the boy is hotter than hot. He's hot, hot, hot. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of Wicked Hot. Kevin and John. Uh, Kevin, this week. We posted on the Instagram. What do we post? Who guessed it? Who didn't guess it? Um, so we posted a picture of uh, a film cinema camera, Panavision, 35 millimeter. Uh, that was basically the premise for this entire episode. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was basically it, yes. Yes, and nobody got it. Yeah, no one guessed it, Um, but this week, guys... We are going to be doing another one of our history episodes. Uh, we had previously done this with the 3D movies. So if you want, you could check that out. I forget what episode number it is, but it says it in the title. I think it's eight. There you go. And it's also um, some of the stuff that I talk about a little later about the digital stuff. Uh, you're going to want to know about 3D stuff because it kind of correlates with yeah. the digital and the 3D stuff, especially with Avatar. Oh, yeah, and I think the 3D stuff is pretty interesting on its own, too. But um, this week, guys, we are going to be talking about the history of film, um, specifically from, you know, like, kind of the precursors to it all the way up to uh, current digital age. Um, I'm excited for it. This was a lot of interesting stuff that I was reading and very technical. And there were still some questions that I wanted to answer that weren't answered. For yes. like in in layman's terms, basically. Yeah, I know my stuff. I'm gonna have to try to break it down as much as possible into terms that normal people can understand. Because even as somebody who went to film school, I, some of the stuff I didn't understand for the digital part. So you're handling the history of film 
in movies and I'm handling mainly the digital age um, in filmmaking. Yes. All right, guys. Well, let's get into it. We're starting history of film in three, two, one. Get into it. There's no movement in movies at all. They are still pictures. But when shown at 24 frames a second through a light bulb, it creates the illusion of movement. So thus, as opposed to a recording device, when you're watching a movie, a film print, you are watching an illusion. And to me, that illusion is connected to the magic of movies. So before we get into the idea of the first motion picture, I want to take you way, way back to the year 1878. Damn. Um, so basically what happens here is uh, British photographer Edward Moybridge, which, by the way, he spells Edward like a bitch. How does he spell it? E-A-D-W-E-A-R-D. Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah. That's that, what white people should. That sounds like a hipster thing. It's like e odd we ard. It's like no, it's Edward. I'm like, okay, <laughs> you're a bitch. <laughs> yeah, and then that sounds like somebody who would get mad at at the pronunciation, the wrong pronunciation of the. Oh, of they the get name. so mad, yeah. so mad. Um, but yeah, so this whole started because um, Edward Mybridge um, was sponsored by the founder of Stanford University, Leland Stanford, to film a horse. So the whole idea behind it uh, was to determine if when a horse was galloping, if it had all four feet off the ground at the same time. This is the only reason like all of this happened was because Stanford University founder wanted to basically conduct an experiment of are all the horse's feet airborne when it's galloping. That's it. I feel like you don't need a movie for that. I feel like you could easily see that and that's just something you can look at just be like hey i want you to to look at this horse and see if all the feet are off the ground at the same time and then report back to me leland stanford had very high expectations like i want you to design slow-mo film never never mind film slow-mo film so i can meticulously see he's like wanting like the kentucky derby like finish line camera made yeah he's definitely got some type of horse fetish that hasn't come out yet so um, in, uh, in 1879, Moybridge had silhouettes made so they can be projected onto a screen via a device he called um, a Zupraxiscope. And he was the one who invented it and is actually considered as the first movie projector. Uh, the uh, quote-unquote film in this instance looked basically like a vinyl record with a translucent border with sets of images displayed. So when the disc spun... Oh, wow. It projected the images as a cohesive movie. So literally think of a vinyl record, but instead of it being black, you have a translucent edge. And then say, for for this instance, we're talking about the horse, right? He's right. filming the horse. It's different pictures of the different, you know, m I guess, movement stages of the horse. So when it's spinning within the projector, it actually looks like a horse galloping. Wow. Yeah, it's crazy. That is crazy. Did it happen to say how many frames per second it was? I think it was six. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. It was very, yeah, it was, it was very rudimentary. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, so from the inspiration of, uh, Moybridge, the first motion picture camera was invented by a Frenchman named Louis Le Prince. Louis Le Prince. 
Um, he patented a 16 lens camera in 1887. Um, and this camera was actually um, operated by the first eight lenses being triggered by an electromagnetic shutter on film. So he patented a 16 lens camera in 1887. And the way the camera operated was, uh, and by the way, when you're, for people who wouldn't look this up to visualize, the camera looks like a box with legitimate 16 different fucking lenses on it. Yeah, so when, have, I, when I think of that, I think of like the 50s camera that has a couple lenses on it and you know, they just like change it live. Yes. And yes. it's like you see it go like the depth of field, like go in and out. As right. they change the lens, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, usually 50s and 60s cameras, had, I think, had three lenses on it. Yeah. Um, this had 16, but it was like a box. So so the first eight lenses were actually triggered by the film going through an electromagnetic shutter. And then the other eight would operate on the film itself. So the first eight are basically wow. just there to start, ascent, basically start the shutter for the film to start being, at, like, whatever's being captured is really only being captured on the last row of eight lenses. Damn. Um, so the only reason that this wasn't successful was, as I mentioned, like you have 16 different lenses on a box and each lens would capture the image from a different viewpoint. Slight variations, but when right. you put it together, it just looks as if, um, basically is it, it, it's as if I put my hand in front of you and it looked like I had a ghost trail behind me. Yeah. So basically, almost like translucent uh, versions of my hands that followed my actual solid hand. Yeah, if that makes sense. for for like the photography people, it's a slow shutter speed. Okay, basically yeah. picking up the hand like every step of the way. It's kind of a like a choppy choppiness, right? Which makes sense because this is technically being you know slow shutter for considering you have to go through basically 16 different yeah. lenses yeah. To, to, to get an image. Sounds very cumbersome. Um, yes. So after this, he actually, uh, Louis Le Prince, uh actually went on to invent a single lens camera in 1888. Um, he used it to make the movie Round Hay Garden Scene, which honestly, lots of movie, and by movie, I mean, you're not going to be able to see this in the theater. But a lot of a lot of his movies were like literal scenes titled like man walking, train moving, this round hate garden scene. It's just people in a garden just yeah. like dancing or walking around. And yeah, a lot of movies back then were just like something moving like that. Right. That was everyone goes to the theater and watches a train coming towards you. Yeah. Like that's like a fucking no... movie back then. Well, this is actually even precursor to theaters. This m most of the time, and we'll get into that later. But um, all of the motion pictures that he made, uh, Louis Le Prince, uh, were shot on gelatin or on glass plates. So wow. they weren't actually shot on like cellulose film yet. Damn, I know a lot of cartoon uh, Disney movies were shot on glass plates or painted on glass plates, like the backgrounds. And then the animation was like superimposed over it. Really? Yeah. Holy shit. That's, that's awesome. how they shot a lot of like Cinderella, Snow White, like 30s, 40s, 50s uh, cartoon movies. Do you think that was like a cost thing or? Uh, it definitely wasn't a cost thing because it was very expensive. 
Well, yeah, yeah. if you're hand drawing on different plates. So they made like they would make like a, a giant piece of glass, like very long piece of glass, and just like yeah. slowly move it through the frame as like a background that's moving. And then they would draw, you know, like normally they would draw like the person, each individual right. frame. But the backgrounds were the gl- the glass frames. So they essentially were stagnant. Yes. That's interesting. Um, so I, at this point, um, after Le Prince does his shit, in comes our boy, William Freeze Green, who we talked about in our 3D movie episode. Probably don't remember, but we talked about this guy. Because he was one of the first people to come up with like the stereoscope that ends oh, up yeah, becoming yeah. 3D film. So Green started to experiment with using oiled paper for film projection, uh, but he ended up using celluloid. So he patented a camera to make use of celluloid film, um, but in 1890, while he was demonstrating it, um, it was a complete failure. It was horrible <laughs> frame rate, and it was very unreliable. So after his failure in that, Thomas Edison, who honestly, I feel like he's a part of basically like every innovative story during this time frame, like late 1800s, early 1900s. He's kind of like Edison. He's kind of like the John Taffer of the (laughs) inventing world. Yeah. He's like, oh, your, your idea sucks. Well, let me, uh, let me tinker with it a little bit. Let's see if I can make something of it. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's definitely it. He's he, instead of being a bar expert who's opened thousands of bars, he's like, I've padded in over 10,000 items. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, unfortunately for Mr. Green, uh, Thomas Edison did not go and help him out. He was just like, oh, OK, I see what's going on right now. Um, and he was involved with the creation of what was called the kinetograph. Um, so it actually wasn't Thomas Edison, really. It was his employee, W.K.L. Dixon, who patented it and was able to use 35 millimeter wide celluloid film strips. Nice. So if anything, it's actually an employee of the Edison company that uses what is essentially like the standard film format. That's crazy. He probably sent out his intern. He's like, hey. This this is this shit's beneath <laughs> yeah. me. Like, go go check out this film. Yeah, thing. yeah. So this actually became a huge um, success within the Edison Company, um, and Thomas Edison himself uh, revealed the camera and um, the the film in the eighteen ninety three World's Fair as the kinetoscope. So he was like kinetograph. It's an Edison thing now, so it's not going to be kinetoscope. Um. But interestingly enough, the films could only be viewed through a peephole in the camera. Um, that sounds like some the start of some shady <laughs> shit. Yeah. So it's funny because the first commercial exhibition of film was in 1894 when the kinetoscope peep show parlor opened. I could just see the start of it. It's like some guy's like, hey, you come look through this little hole oh, in, the, in this wall here. You know how the porn industry always is like in it innovates is like the whatever the porn industry chooses as far as format that's like yeah. what wins. Yeah, exactly. It's like immediately there's no format absolutely. It's like film or no film and they're like, "You know what? Let's stop having sex in front of people and live performances. Let's let's get into these peep show things." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. And that's how film was born. And that's how film was born. Yeah. Um so 
funny enough, Edison actually thought there was no money to be made in actual projection of images. <laughs> Dumbass. And didn't invest in it. Yeah. He thought that like the peep show idea would just kind of stick and that's why, how it would always be. Why seen. wouldn't he think that people would want to see moving pictures at that time? That yeah, nobody had like on a mass scale. On a mass yeah, scale. There too. are people alive at that time who had never seen a moving image. Like, don't you think somebody would be like, Oh my god, I want to see that shit. I think he's too rich at this point. Yeah. He's like <laughs> too disconnected. He's like, I see that shit all the time. What, what do I care? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so as a surprise to no one, this actually came to bite them in the ass in 1895. Of course. Because commercial projections started. And other inventors across the world continued on the route of innovation and uh, within the projection scope. So the following year, Edison's company realized, which again, to me, seems like a no-brainer. They use projection to large <laughs> audiences rather than a single consumer in a peep show. Like if you want more money, it's it's it, you you could pay so many more to see your like one fucking image. Yeah, that's like the guy that missed the Bitcoin craze. It's like you could buy three thousand Bitcoin for ten cents, and he's like, "Nah, I'm good." It's like this is how Edison fucked up with the whole film thing. Honestly, I'm gonna bring it because uh, that seems like there's a risk involved. It's like a penny stock, right? A Bitcoin. This is like seeing the car. And being like, no, my horse is more reliable. And not investing in automobiles. True, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, dude, uh, Captain Nemo, a League of Extraordinary <laughs> Gentlemen, had an automobile. You knew <laughs> that shit was going to catch on. Odd reference to anyone who's seen League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. I think everybody's seen that, but nobody remembers it. That he had a car? And everyone the else movie in general. I'm talking about the movie in general. <laughs> it's a very forgettable movie. I've seen it three times, and I don't remember one fucking scene from that movie. I feel like it was a good movie, but I digress. It was a movie. So yeah, despite all this kind of like last minute realizations by Edison's company, ironically, Edison helped standardize the usage of 35 millimeter film. And uh, along with the Lumiere company, with their newly created projector, standardized um, the 16 frames per second for, for film. Damn, that that wasn't the original like eight or something or like, ten or something like that. So sixteen uh, is six, six. So, yeah, so sixteen is like groundbreaking back then. Yeah, we'll get into it later, but it's basically like HFR, but in a good way. So the late eighteen nineties were interesting because most of most films were showcased by uh, cameramen locally after they finished. So cameraman goes out, he he films something. And then he just starts showing it to people like in a fair or a as a traveling, like, you know, salesman or whatever. Um, after he basically showcases it to a, an, like an on-site audience, uh, the prints were sent back to the company and they basically made a, like, if you will, a straight to VHS for anyone who is interested in purchasing. So a guy goes out, he, you know, films a uh, sun rising and then he sends that over and then the company is like, all right, we're going to make a bunch of sunrising movies and we'll sell it to the highest bidder or not to the highest bidder, but we'll sell it to the consumer um, or to like comp other companies who are interested in basically showing it off themselves. So what I've learned is it turns out that home theater still reigns supreme than going to the movies even back then before... They were even a thing. Yeah, fuck going to the movies. 
<laughs> so yeah, you, you obviously had to be quite wealthy to purchase these prints. Never mind showcase them at home. Um, and prints were actually sold by the foot, and they were sold on average fifteen cents per foot, which back then that's a lot. Was this was Kodak already making film at this point? Like, is film mass produced at this point? Uh, well, no, it was not mass produced, and Kodak is a Japanese company, so Japan was very much in the Stone Age in the 1890s. Okay, that makes sense. And then they were about to get into some shit later on. So, yeah, exactly. that, that makes sense. Yeah. So, um, but it's funny because the more popular subjects were actually sold two to three times more per foot. So. Ooh. Figure you're going over 50 cents per foot. That's that's like a mortgage right there to <laughs> yeah, get a is. fucking reel of film. <laughs> um, so it's interesting because the most popular way to view movies wasn't originally in the theater, um, although they had been exhibited in existing theaters and music halls. But um, instead, they actually uh, were shown within various storefronts. And... This kind of blew my dick off a little bit because these storefronts that that showcased movies were called Nickelodeons. What? Because it cost a nickel, which makes sense. Why the fuck Nickelodeon is a channel on TV? Never understood what that meant. I thought oh that was like my a God. word like Google, but apparently it's not. Yeah, named I always... after a Nickelodeon, where you pay a nickel to see a movie in a store. That's insane because no, that's a that's a kids channel. So like, how is a kid gonna be like? Oh, I understand what that means. Like, I never <laughs> yeah. got that. Oh yes, in the eighteen nineties, that was a famous way to go to the movies. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's one sophisticated as fuck child or pretentious. So another thing that kind of blew my dick off, and I honestly thought this came in later, but color in movies happened in the early nineteen hundreds. Really? Yeah. So the method that they used was actually called kinema color and they added red and green filters so that any colors being filmed um, that fell within that spectrum would essentially pop. Uh, what you really got was exactly what you'd expect, which was film that looked as if there were filters on top of it yeah. that looked green and red. Um, there was a shit ton of color flicker because of the fact that if something is moving rapidly, from basically from one filter to the next, it's it's like just jumping all over the place because it's not a stagnant thing that's happening. Yeah, yeah. So because of all this, Technicolor came into play, and they actually came up with the idea to project the color simultaneously. For example, Kinemacolor, you go from red to green, green to red. Technicolor, you're projecting both simultaneously, thus eliminating any sort of color flicker. But as we know, Technicolor is still very much in play. Yeah. Um, they further developed subtractive color and used a beam splitter within the camera to filter red and green images um, simultaneously onto two pieces of 35 millimeter film. That's interesting. Beam splitter is what they use for uh, teleprompters now. Yes. So they were... Chemically, so after once the colored image is onto two pieces of 35 millimeter film, like literally one part is on the red, one part is on the green. So once the image was filmed, they were then chemically toned and they were glued together base to base to make a single strip of film. 
Um, and the first film to use it throughout the movie was The Black Pirate in 1926. Damn, um, that, that actually sounds like too recent to have like legitimate editing practices done on film. Yes, yeah, they basically would cut it and then glue together. Um, but what's funny is that the projector heat would actually make the movie out of focus because of the distortion to the fused <laughs> film strips. So you would get pretty decent color for the time, you know, 1920s. Um, it's it's not by any means like the color how you would see in the 50s and in and, and more recent right. films when color was starting to come into play. Yeah. But it's, it still was pretty decent. Um, but yeah, you, you'd see that, but then the movie would slowly start to lose focus. Um, and unfortunately, because of this, by 1928, uh, when they fixed the process to a st- single strip of film, so no more having to fuse it together, um, it was just way too expensive to produce a movie in color because it, it actually cost three times as much more than in black and white. Damn. And that was back when people didn't give a shit about if it was in black and white or color. Right. Um, like, this just, it, it blew my mind because imagine if most movies that we know that are in black and white, not, not because they were purposely made in black and white, but like classic movies like Casablanca, like all like the classic, like horror creatures, like Dracula, yeah. Creature of the Black Lagoon, all, all those things. I mean, those are later, right? My favorite but, black and white movie is Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Okay. From imagine if that was in color. 1938, I think. Like, uh, imagine if all those things were in color. That's insane to me. Yeah. It, That's it, insane to me that it was, it was possible. It's very weird to think that that movie could be in color. Because filmmakers back then shot... They, they shot the movie and they did the cinematography for the movie to specifically be in black and white. So right. the fact that it could be colorized like um, Wizard of Oz is. Yeah, that was originally right. shot in black and white. So... The fact that it could be in color is like very odd to think about. And yeah. I know the first prints of the color version of Wizard of Oz looked fucking terrible. Yeah. Because it's basically I, like I know some marker had, on, on film. Yeah. And I know when they like color black and white things, that's basically what it looks like. Is it looks like someone just yeah. drew on it. Yeah. And that's pretty much what they do. Yeah. Um, it's, it's just crazy to me that it was just too expensive to produce. And that's kind of why we know old movies as being black and white movies. Yeah. Because at this time, the old movies that are black and white were the ones that literally were man sitting on a chair, a woman yeah. walking in the park, train moving. Like the, those were the movies from then on. It's like normal, actual movies could have been color and they instead went with black and white. So by the thirties, color was non-existent until Technicolor was able to create a new beam splitter that enabled the camera to record three primary colors. So that's yellow, cyan, and magenta. The negatives that captured the light were printed onto gelatin matrix films. So a matrix film is essentially what is inside the lens that is able to quote-unquote see the color. The matrix would then be color-soaked um, in its respective color. So three different types of matrix. I don't know if in this case it would be a matrixes or matrices. I would say Maytri. I don't think that's right. <laughs> that doesn't I, sound I, right. I, I'm pretty sure that one is as 100% As soon as I wrong. said it, as soon as I said it, I was like, that is not right. <laughs> so, yeah, three matrices are matrices. Um, one in one in cyan, one in magenta, one in yellow. Color soaked, put in the camera. So everything, the light, the light 
that is essentially going through the lens is being picked up with that color. Right. Um, and at this point, the color process was essentially flawless. And the first film to use it was an animated short by Disney, which was Flowers and Trees in 1932. This led to much more vivid colors, much more variation of colors. You had gr- essentially because they reduced instead of just doing, you know, red, blue, red, green, you bring it to magenta, cyan, yellow, you're lessening the colors, but by that you're opening up to a whole new range. And that's basically how with that subtractive coloring, they were able to basically, it's ironic that subtractive coloring gives you way more color, which is exactly yeah. what they did. Um, it doesn't sound like it should make sense, but it does. I, I guess it just works. It does. It does. Now that we have how color was translated onto film, I wanted to talk, and this is going to be more of a brief thing because this is where things get really technical and very, very confusing. And that's when it comes to sound in film. So sound in film was always something that garnered significant interest. Um, But at the time, it was almost impossible to include sound in movies just because of synchronization issues. Yeah. The two main companies for sound film at the time were uh, Vitaphone and Movie Tone. And Vitaphone used, and Vitaphone was um, sponsored by Warner Brothers. They used the process of simply recording sound separately onto a disc and having it sync during presentation via the projector. So for the most part, because cameras at, and I'm sure cameras now are noisy, right? the camera would be in a glass booth and then the recording microphone would be out where the actors were performing. Right. Once that was done, the editor would take the sound, mix it himself, and then you'd basically have the film and then the soundtrack, which would contain music, vocals, sound effects, all that bullshit. Right. Um, and they would have to sync it together. That's crazy, honestly, because that's yeah. that's how it works today. Like the... I'm specifically talking about IMAX cameras because they are extremely loud. I'm sure they are louder than the the cameras back then. And they have to really be careful when they're recording audio while there's an IMAX camera filming because it's so fucking loud that you really? can't capture any audio while it's recording. That's crazy to me. I, I think cameras would not make noise at all but i guess i'm wrong <laughs> yeah the, the film cameras especially that 70 millimeter imax camera is like insanely loud now yeah. i gotta like look up a youtube video of how it sounds this led to their downfall because of synchronization editing and distribution yeah the cost of distribution was way too high basically if you think about it for films they with had sound? to for films with sound at the time because you had to one transport the film and then transport the yeah. soundtrack yeah and apparently the sound like the soundtracks would always get damaged a lot yeah. so they had to make extras for in case they got damaged on site so essentially you're sending one film with five additional soundtracks jesus the cost is going to get high yeah that makes um, sense so is it somebody like in a projector booth just like hitting the buttons at the same time to try to get them to sync up properly and that's how it's getting fucked up right 
And Jeez. this is crazy to, to people probably now, but projectionists at the time need to be highly accurate and skilled to synchronize the recording. Without that, things could go to shit real quick. For the most part, if it was running correctly, it was it was pretty flawless. But if there was a small, just minor detail that was missed, it was embarrassingly catastrophic. So that, that was like when we covered 3D and it was uh they didn't make the projectors synchronized at the same at the exact same time, it would be completely fucked up and unwatchable. Yeah, and same with audio. <laughs> it's the same with audio. Think of I mean you're you're watching a movie and it goes from English with uh you know everyone talking normal and then it goes straight to 1970s Chinese karate movie with English dubbing. That's that, that's how quick that could fall. That happens to me. So we were watching, don't fucking judge me for this. We were watching, I was sitting there, Kathy was watching the Twilight series on the Twilight the, Zone? Twilight, like with Kristen Stewart and. Oh, okay. Yeah, this that, is the yeah. vampires and werewolves. Okay. Right, right, right. So, what team are you on? Uh, no, no team at all. Because they're all terrible. <laughs> okay. So she's watching it on the Xbox One, uh, the Blu-ray version of it, because we, have, of course, bought all the Blu-rays. And the, the audio is not syncing properly. I'm like, this is unwatchable. This is fucking bullshit. And she's like, I don't even notice it. And the voice dubbing is off, too. Yeah. And I'm like, I, for some reason, the Xbox One, sometimes the audio gets off on Blu-rays. And as soon as I said it, she's like, God damn it. I can't fucking watch this anymore. Yeah. If even if it's a millisecond and you notice it, it's done. It's done. You can't watch it. Yeah, I feel bad for saying something because she didn't notice it up until that point. <laughs> Just ruined it for her. I did. That's okay. But yeah, as far as synchronizing, when it came to editing, it was basically impossible. They would I, have to. That would be a fucking nightmare. Yeah. So in this case, they have to re-record what they wanted to splice in at the exact moment. Oh my god. So say you have a line of dialogue that is being taken out of the movie. You have to re-record everything up to that point to cut it out and splice it into the part that you want to do it and record. I do not envy that editor. <laughs> if there was one thing that I learned in film school, it is your video could be complete dog shit quality horrible movie completely fucking terrible but if your audio is on point you're golden like that is the biggest part of movies nowadays especially and the fact that they had so many audio issues back then uh it really makes me think like they are they're fucking gods the editors back then are fucking gods because they you're were cutting able to things edit. with like scissors yeah scissors and glue <laughs> Like they were using the shit that a fucking five year old's using nowadays. Yeah. And then in this case they're using vinyl records and then re recording a vinyl record to yeah. have movie audio onto it. With all with all these problems, uh Movie Tone got it right. Uh they pioneered with optical sound. So the sound was recorded right onto the film via print of the actual waveform. How fucking so, time. Yeah, so so if you think about how audio looks uh, it's just a bunch of waves, right? And 
that was printed on the edge of the film strip. I don't really know how. I tried looking it up. Really? It's that confusing is... as fuck. I don't know how that's That's crazy. Did. Yeah, but it's very technical. So they, they, they were able to do it. What's crazy is the use it, they used an electric lamp that would shine through the waveform um, as it's read. It's read via an electric signal. And that electric signal, based on a picture, is able to convert it and amplify it into analog sound. Jesus. That's um, how optical sound started. And I mean, shit, we, we still use it for DVD or CDs. So, and DVDs. Yeah. And I know that is still used on film today, that movies that are shot on film, which isn't very much, actually. So, I'm going to go over the digital aspect of filmmaking nowadays. And I'm going to jump way far ahead. So, I think you stopped in like the 40, 30, 30s or 40s. Yeah, 30s, 40s. My uh, the digital aspect. I know nothing really happens in terms of like crazy innovations with film from then until the 80s. Um, well, oh yeah, aside from 3D. Yeah, 3D. In our episode, know, things 3D. get smaller. <laughs> you know, you know how normal innovations right. work. It's like yeah, they figure out how to make it smaller. Um, so digital filmmaking actually starts in the 80s, uh, which I thought was fucking crazy because you think of digital and you're like, oh. Early two thousands on. I was going to say late nineties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, making movies with film is called cinematography, and if you didn't know that, that's surprise. Pretty, pretty common knowledge. <laughs> um, but making movies with digital cameras or digital uh, devices is called digital cinematography, and that's kind of the phrase that they coined in the uh, mid two thousands. So, my uh, question is, what is the cinematographer? do exactly the cinematographer is, is responsible the cinematographer in my opinion is the most skilled and important person on a movie set so they are responsible for lighting the set um filming uh getting the angles correct and getting the sound um combined with the video aspect of it okay so um and the Late 1980s, uh, digital cinematography starts to kind of evolve. Uh, Sony is a big proponent in the digital uh, cinematography, and they start to make these HDVS video cameras, uh, which is basically a... It's, it's not digital in the sense that we think about it, like a digital recording onto a card. It's, it's still a, a digital recording, but it's onto a tape. Okay. So, it's, so it's it's digital onto an analog medium still. That reminds me of the camera that Marty McFly uses when he's filming the time machine. Right. Right. At the mall. And that's the A very, camera like that. That's the very start of the digital cinematography age. It's like that that point. And it was still very new. They were they were right when they hit that mark, but it was still very new. And pretty much nobody was using it at that point. Right. In 1987, the movie Julia and Julia was the first movie to use scenes that were shot completely on digital uh, cameras. So it was, it's basically like we have today with the IMAX stuff with like the Dark Knight where there's a couple scenes that are filmed in on, on an IMAX camera. 
Right. Is it because of cost? Is is that what? Yeah, it was cost, and it was the. You know, I think with like the Dark Knight when you were saying like like IMAX scenes, they do it for like big action set pieces. Right. I can't imagine that Julia and Julia is having like a big action set piece where they're like, we need to have this, these scenes digital. These must be really intense scenes that they they decided to switch from film to the digital. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. Cause this is the first movie that is credited with having like an HD high definition scene in it. And it's just like a drama movie. It's yeah. It, it's a drama. And mainly they, they shot this way because the cost of editing in digital was extremely high at that point. Cause you need a computer to edit digital footage. Right. So an eighties computer to edit movies. Yeah. I can't even, I don't even know how that looks. Yeah. So in 1996, the movie rainbow was the first film to exclusively use digital post-production, which is basically recording onto a computer editing it digitally and then rendering it back onto a digital copy and then back onto film. Interesting. So how do they convert it from film to digital? So they took to edit it. They transferred the digital copy onto what's called a internegative uh which basically is a way to put uh um an analog medium onto a computer. At okay. that at that point it was fucking insanely expensive. Like owning a computer back then was like nobody owned a computer. Right. And only like Intel and, and Apple owned computers. Uh, back IBM then. and yeah. shit like that. Yeah. yeah. This is crazy because I, I, I imagine things are going to be expensive because you're basically pay, paying for wizardry. Yeah. And, and, it, and witchcraft. It's, it's like, a, an, like a negative that turns things into computer programming. That's <laughs> fucking crazy. Exactly. I'm, I'm thinking like, okay, so Rainbow was 1996 and this is like the pinnacle of digital editing and, and visual effects. I'm like, this is three years after Jurassic Park has come out. And yeah. that shit, I don't know if you've seen that recently, but that shit still holds up. Oh, I've seen it recently. And, and I know I it's... added I, it to my list on Netflix yeah. again. I know it's animatronic, but but a, there's a lot of visual effects stuff on there that still holds up to this day. How the fuck do you do that? <sighs> I, I Do think... you make it on a computer and then print it and then put it on film? Yes. They basically... Okay. Oh, I'm surprised I got that right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they basically take it from the computer and print it back onto film. And that's how they did it up until the early 2000s. When they were still making movies on film, they were transferring it from film to digital on the computer to edit and then transferring it back from the computer back to film to be that's crazy. distributed to, to theaters. That's crazy. So in 1998... That's right about the time that I got into filmmaking, and that was like the first time that, that I got a camcorder, and it was an HD cam, and that was like groundbreaking at the time, because that was... Oh, I remember. That was the first time that they had 1920 by 1080, and that was like the very first time that it was like consumer level or professional slash consumer level HD cinematography it was available on the market. So later that year, the movie The Last Broadcast, which I've never fucking heard of in my life. I've never seen I feel it like I feel like that's the movies they use to pioneer certain things. Right. Know? It's like the Ang Lee. Like, this movie's not going to... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like the Ang Lee movies. Uh, that movie was the very first movie to be completely made in um, digital 
format. And pretty much nobody saw it because I've never fucking heard of the movie. <laughs> I got a conspiracy theory for these movies that are pioneers in certain things. What's that? Like, granted, I don't, I've never heard of the Black Pirate in 1926. I don't know any movies from basically <laughs> earlier than 1950s, probably. Earlier than the Goonies, basically. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm thinking that they're, th- they're, they're making the movie or writing, and director, writer just knows this movie's going to be shit. Let's call up those guys I want to experiment with, <laughs> yeah. with various technology. And who knows? Maybe you know this. May, this movie won't be remembered, but maybe it'll be remembered for being yeah. the first to use sound, the first to use color, the first to use digital, yeah, HDR or whatever. It's like they 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 think that this movie might be terrible, but at least it's going to go down in the record books. Yeah, for something. Yeah. So on to 1999, and John. I'm going to ask you this question. Who do you think is the pioneer of digital filmmaking in the year 1999? M. Night Shyamalan. It is not M. Night Shyamalan. So in the year 1999, George Lucas, of all people... I, I, that was going to be my second one. <laughs> I was going to go with George Lucas, but I thought it was too easy. So George Lucas released this little indie film called The Phantom Menace, and it has a few scenes with digital uh cinematography and do you know which do you know which scenes uh the pod racing scene and makes sense. that makes sense oh fuck what was the other scene i can't remember the other scene but definitely the pod racing scene well that's like all cgi so it's probably way easier it makes sense not and not having to yeah not having to retranslate it to be but wait you're saying it was filmed and made digitally, or it was, was it put made, back onto film? No, it was it was filmed digitally and then edited digitally and then put back onto film. So okay, see that seems easier. Yes, you should just do that yes. if you're going to do that. Yeah. So after the movie released and it was obviously a huge hit, uh, he basically said, "I'm going to release every movie I ever do on completely 100 percent digital." That was a mistake. <laughs> so he's like, "Yeah, um, the next movie, Episode Two, Attack of the Clones, going to be digital." So, Attack of the Clones releases in 2000, and then the sequel releases in 2002. Both of them are completely 100% shot on digital cameras, edited digitally, and released back onto film. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So, Did they not have digital projectors no. yet at the time? No, they okay. did not have right. digital well, projectors. That makes sense. That makes sense. Um, so, a fast forward from 2002 on to 2009... Uh, which is like the first innovation for digital filmmaking, which is insane to me. Like I was in film school in 2006 and I feel like digital was like at the forefront of everything. Right. Apparently not in Hollywood because in 2009, Slumdog Millionaire became the first movie uh, nominated for an Academy Award for Best Cinematography. That was shot completely on digital. Yes. Okay, so that's a history that isn't a shitty movie and remembered. Right. Yeah, that's like the first movie that has some innovations in it and is actually very good. Yeah. So th- that same year, Avatar was not only shot on digital camera, but we talked about it in the 3D episode. <clears throat> it had some groundbreaking advancements in the 3D technology, which is it's crazy to think about that not only was it a digital like one of the first digitally 100% digitally shot movies, but it was also the forefront of like the 3d craze. 
and I still think it may be at the forefront because James Cameron just invents this shit. Yeah. It's crazy because it's like 100% digital and that's like unheard of at this time. And it's like, oh, by the way, he made this fucking 3D rig that that is like constantly used nowadays for shooting 3D movies. James Cameron is like Thomas Edison now. He's like a double innovator with digital cinematography and also 3D at the same time. <laughs> yep, it's crazy. So in 2012, uh, we get the movie that everybody fucking hates. 2012? 2012, the Hobbit series in oh God. high frame rate, HFR. Uh, and I don't know about you, but I saw the movie in HFR and I fucking hate, I could not stand it. I couldn't stand it either. I couldn't stand the movie as a Lord of the Rings fan. I couldn't stand the movie, and I thought it looked like it was fast forwarded for a time and a half. Yeah, I don't know about you, but like, so I have an HD TV that has 240 hertz. Immediately, as soon as I get a TV that has that, I turn it off because I can't stand it. <laughs> I don't think I have 240 hertz, but I can't stand it regardless. I think it looks terrible. Every time I am in somebody's house that has that turned on, which is very often actually, I'm like. Man, turn that shit off. Like, I, I don't want to watch a fast-forwarded commercial or, or a Netflix show or something. Yeah, I, I can't stand it. That's like how the, uh, if you remember how the Blu-rays used to look. Yes. They yes. got rid of that bullshit. They did, I always yes. thought it looked weird. If you don't know, HFR is 48 frames a second. A normal standard movie is shot 30. at 20, 24 oh, frames a second. 24, really? Yeah. Tw actually, 23.976 if you want to get technical about I it. Do, I do want to get technical. <laughs> T uh, TV, you're actually close. TV is shot in 30 frames a second. So anything you watch okay. on TV, Netflix, that is 30. makes sense. Why it seems so different? Yeah, so you always a, you always get a feel where it's okay. This is a TV feel, even if it's on HBO. You know it's on TV, right? And if you watch a movie, which this this not to get off on a little tangent, but this season in Westworld, they went from movie. Don't quality. fucking spoil it for me. I haven't watched. No, no, no I'm not. Okay. I'm not. But like. In certain scenes, they go, and you can tell, specifically movie quality, 23.796 frames per second, and then it jumps back to 30. So Nine, it's nice. It makes a little more sense. Yes. It's because uh, TVs at the, at the time that they were making uh, like sitcoms and stuff, like 90s, late 90s, uh, the TVs can handle 30 frames a second better. Um. Okay. So moving on to film, it's like, you know, you get that little shutter look because it's a little slower. And that's uh, honestly like what I respect about the film aspect of it. You know, like when you see like... It's a slower process, more refined, right. more tasteful. Right. And I'll get into TV's that. TV's just rust. Right. Yes, exactly. In late 2013, Paramount became the first major studio to distribute movies to theaters in the digital format, basically eliminating the 35 millimeter film entirely. Shame. And actually the last movie that Paramount ever produced in film was Anchorman 2. Really? Yes. Wow. And, and, and it's crazy because the first movie, so Anchorman 2 was the last movie. The first movie that Paramount distributed digitally was The Wolf of Wall Street. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I guess it goes to show that I can't really tell the difference. I'm not a huge like cinephile like that. Although, if someone's like, oh, it's coming out in 35 or 70 millimeters, 
which I still don't really know the difference. I'm like, oh, I'm into that. I'll go see it in 35 or 70 millimeter. 35 is any movie that you see. 70 millimeters is IMAX. That's the the giant screen that you would see. Okay. Okay. This kind of segues into the distribution of digital films. And back in 2005, uh, a bunch of studios got together and came up with a um, digital cinema specification for distributing these movies. It was a joint venture between Disney, Fox, MGM, Paramount, Sony, Universal, and Warner Brothers. So basically every studio... I was going to say every studio ever. Basically every studio ever agreed (laughs) to how they're going to distribute these movies. And it basically encompasses 2K and 4K uh, releases for now. So are are we in the age of 4K? Yes, we are in the age of 4K, but there's occasionally movies released in 8K, 6K. Just because the the technology's there. Well, like there's there, there's <laughs> cameras nowadays that can shoot as high as 12K, uh which is insane. Like it's ridiculous. And fuck. Those movies are still like downscaled to 4K uh to be released this way, but yeah, it, it it basically like when you're editing a movie that's that's larger, like let's say uh you go back to the 1080p aspect and you want to release it in 720p, you have a little more room around the entire frame of the movie to basically do what you want with it. If you want to have it offset a little bit, you have a little room with it. Uh and that's kind of how it is when you shoot on like 12k and you're releasing it in 4k. Well, I feel as if some theaters even today aren't equipped to even just you know project in 4k no a special theater that is a dolby atmos theater right with the sound and with 4k laser projection right and that's that was actually so i guess i am a cinema (laughs) cinema yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) that was kind of some of the concern that theater owners had from switching from film to digital was not only the cost, but the fact that how would this be distributed? Um, So back when theaters were switching, they basically subsidized digital prints and charged a cheaper fee for them to change from film distribution to digital distribution. And, um, I, I know, like, Disney nowadays just, like, s- emails you a fucking file of the movie that is, like, date-locked. So, like, you can't open it until the release date of the movie. And it's just, like... Wait, 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 wait. You're telling me that movie theaters get an email from the studio? Yeah, that's, like, a rudimentary... That yeah, that's a rudimentary just description of how it goes. But it's basically a secure network. I'm assuming Disney... So in this example, Disney emails like AMC corporate and then right. AMC corporate distributes it to theaters. Yes. Okay. All yes. right. I thought it was like some fucking 16 year old, 17 no, year old. But it's not like, hey. like, Oh, I got an email from Disney. All right. I got to get this ready for no, Friday showing. It's, it's not like an email to a Yahoo account. It's like a secured, uh, network. digital film network where only these, you know, Regal AMC Harkins, like they're all in on this network. They can open yes. They can open the the file, but not until the actual release date. Um, so that was like some of the 
perks of changing from film to digital is like, oh, you don't have to get a shipment of a fucking 10 cans of a film right? that you need to roll into a projector to run like, you know, 10 times a day. It's like you just double click on this, click play, and then, you know, you can run all your commercials beforehand. Yeah, it's like you just got to sit there and chill. But some of the major problems with digital are the fact that it just doesn't look like film at all. And when I when like when you watch and I'm specifically thinking of like Pulp Fiction or Reservoir Dogs because those are definitely shot on film. Um, those have the film grain like you know you can you can look at a you film, get the look you, yeah. you can look at a film and you can tell like okay that's shot on film. Nowadays you don't get that like what so I recently watched Jurassic World that's the most recent movie that I watched Jurassic World two, and it does not have the film look like you can tell this is shot 100% on digital. Um, there's no grain. It's just a, a file like a, a movie file. Okay. So a dot MP4. Yeah. So that's some, that's like some of the problems that actual filmmakers have with this. Cause like, you know, think what you want, but filmmakers are artists and they they want to choose their medium based off of how they want their style to look. And Quentin Tarantino and Christopher Nolan have been very outspoken about not using digital. Um, they hate the way that it looks. It, it's too clean. And basically, Christopher Nolan came out and said that movies shot on digital... Uh, the only reason that the filmmaking community is moving to digital is because ease of use, not, not necessarily ease of use, but like they want, he's basically blaming the film industry for wanting to change formats just solely for money. My question is in this case, Christopher Nolan and Quinn Tarantino, when they're doing post-production, are they do, they have to be doing that digitally. Yes. So in my experience, I've only ever worked on one project that was shot on film and it was the worst experience of my <laughs> career because you know, shooting on film, that shit has to be developed. So they have to shoot it on film. You can't, like, it has to be developed in a dark room. Uh, you shoot it on film, you Fuck. send it to a dark room, develop it, and then you can see what you just recorded. With digital... That's the majority of the stuff that I've worked on. You shoot it, you can immediately look at what you've just shot, see, oh shit, it's out of focus, so let's reshoot it. Uh, and that's that's like the majority of why you would want digital nowadays. I would assume, though, for a huge production that the turnaround time is quite short. Right. Turnaround time is great for digital, but there are some issues with... No, no, I'm saying for film. For film, yes. Turnaround time is insane. Like, it takes weeks to... Like, you can... Uh, but for a big production, I would think it would be, all right, we shot for the day, we're going to sleep, and overnight they're going to develop all that. Yeah, shit. usually. So when you shoot on, let's say, film, um, usually get something back that's very rough, and it's called dailies, and you review that, and it's just a, like a black and... Usually a black and white version of what you'd shot for the day. And it's just a horrible quality, but you can only see what you shot. 
and it's very, very expensive. So the issue with shooting on digital is not only is it horrible for shooting fast motion action scenes, it's horrible in any environment that has dust or snow or any pretty much anything that's not suburb sit like a city or something right because it's less visible right so the the dp for um inception basically said director of photography for those people that don't know yeah director of photography for inception said uh one out of six shots for inception was shot on digital a digital camera just to see how it was right and this is include this is uh just talking about action scenes they never used a digitally shot action scene out of six times they shot on the photosonic 35 millimeter camera they used every shot from that wow so every time you see a um an action scene in inception it's a film shot because the the uh digital shot scene was just unusable fuck and it's crazy because uh Michael Bay, like the fucking godfather of digital shit, uh, had to shoot most of Transformers Dark of the Moon in 35 millimeter cameras because digital was so shitty. It was um, like one, it was, yeah, one, it was completely unusable because of the dust. And two, it could not handle the fast movements. Wow. So they shot most of the action scenes in film. That's insane. To me. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. I'm almost like this is like not a true fact, but <laughs> <laughs> So I think I honestly think that digital has a long ways to go and I know um Quentin Tarantino and Christopher Nolan are huge hugely outspoken about how horrible they they think that digital is and and Christopher Nolan has basically come out and said that the film industry is using digital because uh, they they basically want to change and get the money from using digital, from everybody switching to digital, that um, filmmakers aren't considered artists anymore. It's just like a, basically a digital medium nowadays. Right. Whereas using film, you know, you have to, there's a lot more work that goes into using film. There's a lot more... You know, you really have to think out a shot before you shoot something on film because it costs so much money to develop the film and edit the film and transfer it back to film. Like, it's it's crazy how much work goes into shooting on film nowadays. So do you think film is dying? Well, at, Quentin Tarantino said that as soon as digital becomes the standard for filmmaking, he's going to retire. Wow. And I think that's coming very soon. But I honestly think that digital cinematography needs to advance greatly very soon or we're going to go back to film because the digital filmmaking is it's it's so hit or miss right now like with with uh jurassic world to fallen kingdom or whatever the fuck it's called like (laughs) it does not have the film look and it does not look like a film like i the whole time that i'm watching i'm like this doesn't look like a fucking movie to me because it's so CGI, it's so digital, everything's so digital in it. Like right. I want to see those movies shot on film. 
And as much as I hated working with film, I love seeing movies on film. Yeah, you're like, let someone else suffer. Well, um, it's funny because this kind of helped me transition. I mean, it's funny all things end, begin and end with format wars. Yeah. It's always something. So, Kevin, I have a question for you before we wrap things up. Out of the more popular format wars, which do you think was the most catastrophic? Okay. Zune versus Apple. Betamax <laughs> versus VHS. Or HD DVD versus Blu-ray. Okay. I can honestly say that I still own a Zune. And... <laughs> That's funny. I think I, noticed, I knew someone that owned a Zune too. And I remember when they got it, they were like, this is going to be the best thing. Apple's done. You know, it's funny. My first Black Friday experience, I waited in line f- with a friend so he could buy a Zune. And I, I, I honestly haven't picked up my Zune in like 10 years. God. But I, I don't think that's the worst. I think the worst is HD DVD versus Blu-ray because Microsoft and Xbox specifically really tried to adopt the whole HD DVD thing. Yep, they did. Um, And it was such an epic failure that now the Xbox One has a Blu-ray player in it. Yep. It's like they they admitted (laughs) defeat in this. Um, Yeah, I'm going to have to disagree with you on this one for once. I'm going to have to go with the VHS Betamax. Wow. Because Sony was so confident in... This this was like the precursor before Sony was the victor in the Blu-ray. Uh, right. Sony was very confident with Betamax, and they were demolished. You know demolished, what's crazy? Demolished. Yeah, you know what's VHS. crazy about VHS and Betamax is Betamax was exponentially better quality than VHS. It was, but it only hold it only held like an hour of footage. Yeah. So VHS was like. Okay, we can hold two hours of footage. How much porn can we fit on this? Two hours? All right. <laughs> it, it, it it goes back to the whole thing. I'm sure it came thing. down to that. I'm it, sure it came down to it that. It did, actually. It came down to the porn thing. Like, who did porn pick? VHS. That's who won. Blu-ray? So Sony was like, we'll wait till higher quality is more in demand. <laughs> yeah. And then porn was like, we need higher quality uh, porn. <laughs> So they picked Blu-ray. I think thus- the next the next um quality wars for video, they got to get the porn industry involved in film because porn is whoever porn picks like that's the winner. Yeah. And so, I'm pretty sure porn isn't filmed on legitimate film. No. So it's not looking good. It's no, not it's not good. looking good for for 35mm film. <laughs> Unless they start filming in 70mm fucking IMAX shit. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, to everyone that stuck around, thanks again for listening. We really appreciate it. Keep in mind that you can always catch us on other podcast uh, outlets such as Stitcher Radio, Google Play, um, as well as uh, YouTube for our audio version only. Um, and for all your Wicked Hot status updates and news, please give the show a follow um, on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Wicked Hot Talk, um, as well as our respective Twitter and Instagram handles in case you want to know what we're up to. But uh, we hope to see you guys again next Monday. Um, And I guess that's it, Kevin. Yeah, that's it. Bye, everybody.